COVID-19 pandemic has revolutionized remote work before our very eyes. For the first time, a significant portion of the workforce goes to work virtually rather than to a physical office. Remote work has had enormous implications for employers and employees, leading to broad scale and sometimes highly contentious back and forth between workers and managers about where and when work happens. There is perhaps no one better to help us understand the implications of remote work than Professor Nicholas Bloom. Bloom is an economist at Stanford University whose pathbreaking study of remote work before the pandemic has recently found a highly attentive audience. For Bloom, the lessons of the last year are clear. Remote work works. It boosts productivity, reduces costs, and adds to worker happiness. These gains, however, also come at a cost to company cultures, equity between remote and non-remote workers, and pay and advancement barriers for remote employees. Professor Bloom offers a unique analytical framework for understanding the trade-offs of working from home and what the future of remote work might hold. I hope you find this conversation as thought-provoking as I did. Nick Bloom, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You have become the man, one of the men of the hour for the last 18 months, I think, in terms of the sudden shift to working from home, remote work as it relates to the pandemic. And I want to get to how that how that happened, you know, what was that like to suddenly be one of the world's foremost experts on one of the most important employment issues facing a good bit of the world. But let's start from the beginning. I want you to back up as far as you comfortably can to talk about your kind of vocational pathway. How did you wind up as a professor, a labor economist, an expert in this area in terms of you know, finding your way to this work. Thanks. It's a, it's a bit of a weird path. Yeah, I mean, the working from home thing itself is really odd because I'd long worked on working from home going back almost 20 years. And, you know, the genesis, there's a, a couple of things that sparked off. One is, honestly, I mean, this was 2003. We were trying to get some research funding for work on management practices. And a research funder in the UK had suggested we also look at work-life balance linking with Wendy Carlin, who's a professor at UCL in London. And she kind of nudged us in that direction. You know, the rest is history. And as I talk again, and that second nudge I can come back to if you want was, you know, working on this big randomized control trial out in China spurred by a Stanford student. But in terms of academic, I never honestly intended to be an academic. I got a job after I did a master's in Oxford in economics, got a job at this place called the Institute for Fiscal Studies. It's like a research think tank in London. I really enjoyed their, you know, research there. And when I was there, I realized, you know, a lot of the people doing policy research, the kind of thing I like, like influencing policy, trying to use economics, honestly, to make the world a better place was for a PhD trained economist. So I thought, well, I could get a PhD. And at that point, the IFS had a great deal with UCL, University College London, that you could do a PhD while continuing to work. So I basically had a day a week I wasn't paid for and used that work on a PhD. And so at the end, of, I ended up as PhD, a trained economist, and through various weird accidents, to be quite honest, ended up in Stanford in 2005 and have been here pretty much ever since. So do you come from a family of academics? Yes. Or, you know, that's, yeah. that's a fact. My dad is an academic. My dad in medicine, it's a totally different field. But yeah, and I mean, he's, he's still strong at it, writing papers. And my mom was a civil servant in the UK, although after retiring was like a visiting professor taught in a, in a, law, in a law school, King's College London. So, yeah, yes, that definitely was influential. I mean, I grew up like seeing, you know, research journals lying around at home. And it's all the kind of things like academics don't tend to place much emphasis on like income. We had the world's worst car. If it ever did work, it broke. You know, you were much more focused on publications and lots of quirky, weird conversations are much less focused, I guess, on money. And so that kind of ended up skewing my career. So did you hang out with the adults when you were a kid, just listen to these conversations? Is that one of the ways that you sort of, hmm, this is kind of interesting? I don't know. You know, not my dad worked, me, both my parents worked. I'm one of four kids and both my oh, parents okay. worked throughout all of our childhood. So to be honest, I, you know, my parents are kind of working pretty hard. Yeah, so I didn't see a huge amount of them. The I don't know whether indirectly it's more in us a teenager and a bit older, really talking to them. That actually, or in my early twenties, 
that probably was as influential. But it's also the case that, you know, when you're a kid, you see research journals. Yeah. Like things like The Lancet and the British Medical Journal and Cell just lying on the floor because they come through the mail. That I suspect that had an impact. My parents were actually high school educated, but my dad was such an avid reader. I think we subscribed to about 20 different magazines and three daily newspapers. I mean, it was just a very like text rich environment where you couldn't not encounter all this stuff because it was just everywhere. And I think that had a big impact on shaping my future as well. So you did a paper back in 2015 on China that has really been key to a lot of people's thinking over the last year and a half when it comes to remote work. Can you talk a little bit about that paper? Yeah. So that paper was just, you know, it came from the, it was the weirdest birth that I teach undergrads, grads, and in fact, exec head at Stanford. And this was a graduate, so a PhD economics course. And in the back of my class, you know, there's probably 15, 20 people in that class and you chat to the students, you know, it's quite, quite a lot of discussion, you talk to them after class. And at some point around a third of the way through the quarter, you know, I can't really imagine, remember when, but I discovered one of the folks at the back of the class who was a Chinese grad student, kind of slightly older than average, but honestly, nothing particularly out of the, out of the ordinary. I mean, just to put it in context, in the Stanford PhD program, probably two thirds of the students are foreign, only one third are American. So it's it very standard. I d- discovered it was this character called James Liang, who was the founding CEO and at that point the chairman of Trip.com, which is now kind of the second largest, I believe, travel agent in the world, bigger than Expedia. I think it's just more than Booking.com, but that, you know, it's a massive company. And I was like, Stunned to discover James was sitting in the back of my class. You know, I actually went to look at the SEC listings and lo and behold, was a picture of James as the chairman who owned several percent of the company. I mean, it was incredible to have this individual sitting in a PhD economics class. He's a very bright guy. I mean, he did really well. So, you know, this, what this led to was I started talking to him at some point, I think after class, maybe he's been going through papers on management in class when he mentioned he was interested in increasing working from home in his company headquarters out in Shanghai. And his thought process was, look, we have this really expensive real estate in central Shanghai. We want to expand. We don't want to have to buy yet more property. Maybe you can shift some folks to working from home. And I had done some work on this before and around that. In fact, in 2014, I know this is before actually, but I'd done some work with the Obama administration. I've been doing policy work on and off. So Basically, out of that hatched a plan with James to set up what's called a randomized control trial. So they took two divisions in his headquarters out in Shanghai and asked them who wants to work from home four days a week. Around half of them volunteered. And then they randomized within them by even and odd birthdays. And the even folks won. So if you're born on the second, fourth, sixth, eighth, tenth of the month, you got to work from home. And if you're odd, you stayed in the office. And we then ran that as a big experiment and you know, collected vast amounts of data for the next two years and what happened. So how many, how many participants in that study total? So in the end, to remember the numbers, I think we, so we might have ended up with 250 people. So we had 125 approximately that were in the treatment group. They had even birthdays and they were randomized into working from home and 125 people that are in the control group. So they were folks that wanted to work from home, but in a sense, lost the lottery and so had to stay in the office. And then we tracked both sets of them. These people are making telephone calls, taking bookings there in basically, you know, they work in a call center. We tracked their performance like minute by minute for the next 21 months and collected a lot of other things like who quit, who, you know, got promoted, who did well, who made bonuses, et cetera. That is an immense amount of data. That I is. <laughs> <laughs> How did you manage all that? So I worked with Jenny Ying. So there were four of us on the project, James Liang, myself, Jenny Ying, who is a graduate student at Stanford, is now working at LinkedIn, she's a PhD economist, and John Roberts, who's a theorist, who's a professor at the business school. And I'd say, you know, day to day, it was mainly Jenny and I sitting in my office, like running regressions, looking at the data. But I can tell you what we found, because it, at yeah. the time, was surprising. So I just, before I tell the results, what were we expecting? What everyone was expecting that, that people would work from home, they'd goof off, they'd fall victim to what's called the three great enemies of working from home, the bed, the fridge, or the television. 
So their performance will be down, but the firm might save money by real estate savings. Basically, they'd save on the space. And so the question was, how much would they save versus how much they'd goof off? So we then processed the numbers. And what we found, you know, astoundingly, we spent so much time trying to check this was correct, but it, as you'll see in a minute, it, it's borne out in reality in the pandemic. Astoundingly, the working from home employees were 13% more productive than the folks in the office. That is an enormous uptick. That's almost a day a week extra. And when we drilled down into it, what you found is about 4% was because they're more productive per minute. And you interviewed them. They said, look, it's quieter at home. We can just work better. There's all these anecdotes of, you know, people shouting, crying, fighting in the office. Someone told us the person on the desk next to them had clipped their toenails under the desk with a big toenail clipper, that it was amazingly distracting. They they had to leave the room to, to, you know, decompress. You wouldn't think you would need to have a rule about that, but yeah, that would be distracting. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you know, anyone that's been in an office environment knows how noisy it can be. I don't, I don't want to claim home is perfect. Certainly during the pandemic, it's pretty bad, but pre and post-pandemic, home is quieter relatively than the office. And then the bigger uplift, the, the remaining 9%, was from the fact folks at home just worked more minutes. Now, these people are all shift workers, so it wasn't that the people at home were working a longer day. Just within their nine to five shift, they just work more of it. So when you look at it, what you discover is people in the office often don't really start at nine. They turn up at nine, five, nine, ten, or maybe at ten because their, their car breaks down. They take longer lunch breaks. They take longer toilet breaks. The toilet's just further away. They're more likely you know, to bump into Barry from accounting on the way there and have a chat. They take more sick days. People at home took almost half the number of sick days. When you interviewed them, they said often they're not really that sick. So they could work at home or they just wanted to look after their kid or something. So collectively, work from home folks were 13% more productive, A. B, their quit rates almost half because they're a lot happier. But see, the one big sting in the tail is their promotion rates are almost half the ones at the office. So, you know, it's a bit of a mixed blessing. For the firm, on average, it was net good because, you know, they were more productive and they saved on office space. But you have, you know, I'll come back to this later, but it's a big issue in the pandemic. If you are working from home in teams where most other people around you are not, there's definitely a hit to promotion. Interesting. Just out of curiosity, what do you think the state of the research is on the American experience from the pandemic? Are there big tests underway right now? Can we explore a lot of papers on this? What's the future look like in terms of research on it? So, so certainly you can expect a lot of papers. A lot of papers are pouring out. Most of them right now are around just documenting, you know, how many people are working from home, which types of people. I mean, for example, it's mainly educated college grads because they tend to do the types of jobs that can be done remotely, office jobs, professional jobs, variations by, you know, gender, by race, by parts of the country, urban, rural, et cetera. In terms of the performance impact, there's a couple of ways to look at it. One, just at a very, very macro level. GDP right now in you know, quarter three, 2021, is now above its pre-pandemic level, but we're still 5 million short unemployment. So we have, you know, we're missing 5 million less people are working now than they were two years ago, but we actually produce more. So if you look at productivity, we're actually significantly up. We're about 5% up, which suggests that given half of Americans are currently working from home, it probably can't be that bad, particularly because, you know, the pandemic has been negative for productivity. So something pretty big is offsetting it. And part of that is working from home. From you know, surveys and research data, I would say the general number, you know, there's a lot of, you know, it's increasing number of studies, but something like, for example, the stuff we have, we've been serving 5,000 Americans a month. That's worked with Jose Barrera and Steve Davis since the pandemic began. We calculate productivity is probably about three to 5% higher, or certainly will be long run from working from home. If people say adopt hybrid, which is by far the most common pattern. So just that number is assuming, as you know, looks very likely most firms say, for anyone currently working from home, you go back to the office, say, three days a week, you remain at home two days a week, that's likely to increase productivity by 3 to 5%. So it's good. You know, it's not massive. It's not going to double output. But certainly, you know, it's, it's three to five years of growth, just to put that in context. Productivity growth pre-pandemic was about 1% a year. So if the kick up in working from home increases productivity by three to five percent. That's a nice, you know, three to five years worth of additional productivity growth. That is absolutely astonishing. 
you know, who would have guessed that you could solve America's productivity just by telling people to stay home and work? That's quite amazing. Brent, I should say, I mean, if you look at where it comes from now, a large share of it comes from safe commuting time. So the two big components are, so just think about hybrid. Hybrid is by far the most common plan for half you know, the US. That's what they'll be doing post-pandemic. So you come in the office three days a week, you have all your meetings, a lot of events, trainings, et cetera, anything you really need face-to-face contact with. And then the other two days a week, you do your quiet homework. And the two reasons that boosts productivity is one, you know, reading, writing, data work is actually better done at home. And so you're more productive per minute. And that looks like it's maybe one, two percent of the uplift. The other thing that's the you know the larger share, kind of two, three percent or even four percent, is the saving in commute. So just to be clear, the average American commutes about an hour a day. And if they don't have to commute, you know, if you treat that as working time and don't have to commute, they're clearly immediately more productive per hour. And as it happens, they also typically spend about half the saved commuting time working on their current job, half of it in leisure. So saving and commute is an enormous benefit, not just to productivity, but to us individually, because we just get more free time. So what do you think the employer perspective is on this now? I mean, I know at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people, a lot of employers were concerned about losses in productivity. That hasn't panned out. Do you think that the message has gotten through to the leadership that having flexible work arrangements is actually in their business interest? Yes, completely. Absolutely. So over the, you know, I've been talking, I probably talked to 500 managers by now because I, you know, like today, I had two different conversations, including one was the presentation to the, you know, by invitation to the CEO, but the CEO and the senior leadership of a Fortune 500 company and did something similar yesterday, in fact. So it's very clear that corporate America now understands that hybrid working, which is something like three in the office, two at home post-pandemic, improves productivity and particularly is the correct business decision. So why are these different? I think most people are on board for improving productivity, maybe not quite everyone, but you know, hybrid and certainly, you know, very few people want to have fully remote forever, but they certainly think it's worthwhile having one or two days a week. In terms of profit, the reason this was such a big deal is it's really valuable to employees. So employees report it's worth something like 7 to 8% increase in salary in order to get to work from home for two days a week. And given how tight labor markets currently are, every firm I talk to says it is not really an option any longer that we can actually force our employees, our graduate employees, back to you know the office five days a week. <laughs> to tell yeah, you I how mean, extreme, extreme this is, there are only two companies that in the public domain have claimed they're going to do this, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. They both made that statement in June, July. And no other banks followed, no other large companies followed. They have really struggled. I know from internal sources, they are kind of backpedaling. They've basically given up because... The issue is if you try and do a Goldman Sachs, you try and force all your employees back five days a week. We know from the survey data, you're going to find 30, 40% of them basically going to pretty actively start looking for another job. And even worse, it turns out to be skewed towards diversity hires. So particularly, you can imagine that middle senior people with young kids, particularly women, heavily dislike this. Some minorities report they really don't like it. These folks leave. So yeah, maybe if there's another recession, you can get tough and force your employees back five days a week. But right now, it's, it's frankly not an option for graduate employees unless you want to have half of them walk out the door. Yeah, I was going to raise that finance sector example because it's, it's been pretty remarkable to see Goldman Sachs and, and you know, leaning out over their ski tips. You know, we're going to everybody get back to work. You know, we want you back in the office. And if you're a hustler, you'll be here. And if you're not, you're telling us that you don't, you know, you're not really committed. It's interesting to hear that sort of in the background, they're kind of trying to walk back. Because my instant thought was, you know, when Deutsche Bank came out and said, oh, yeah, we'll, we're going to do this forever now. But that's a real competitive differentiator in the market, especially these jobs. You know, investment banking is so high pressure and so, you know, so many hours as it is. That this must have felt something like a huge relief to their workforce just to, you know, not have to, you know, be in the office so much in the last 18 months. 
Yeah, so it's it's been you can see the market forces, the labor market forces, the employers are kind of on the back foot with this. They don't have the kind of leverage they thought they did over their workforces. Any other sectors that you've seen this happening in where I've heard something about law firms, but I'm not sure whether that's true or not. There's two answers to this. So one is you're exactly right. So just, and just to be clear, around half of Americans do jobs that have to be on the business premise. So working from home is rough full-time is only about 50% of the US population. Probably, honestly, most people listening to this because you know it's graduates, managers, professionals. The other half of frontline retail manufacturing. Those folks have been working on the business premises since the beginning of the pandemic, and they, you know they are not going hybrid. So, for example, the company I was talking just literally earlier today, around half their employees are never going to get the option to work from home. You know their jobs don't allow it. So there's plenty of people that are never going to work from home, and it's those frontline employees. In terms of managers and professionals that currently are working from home and can do. I am not aware, apart from Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, of any other single large firm trying to get them back full time. And indeed, as you point out, after JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs said that, no other bank has followed suit. You know, Merrill Lynch hasn't, Morgan Stanley hasn't, Citibank hasn't, Deutsche Bank hasn't, et cetera. So if Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, you know, were, I mean, they've discovered this, I'm sure, tried to actually force that into place. You know, you know what's going to happen, and I've heard this talking to people in those organisations that they just say, "Look, I'm a you know I'm a senior banker at Goldman Sachs. I have two young kids. I'm earning two million dollars a year. I don't want to trash my lifestyle by having to go in five days a week when Merrill's is going to pay me the same money to come in for free and work from home for two. I quit. And you know, once that happens, particularly once that happens if you're Goldman's or J.P. Morgan, and you lose a lot of middle to senior employees, you really want." You know, in particular, they have a serious diversity issue in those organizations. And these are the employees that like to walk out the door. You basically just give up. So they are, in some senses, the Yahoo of 2013, Goldman's and JP Morgan. I mean, I, let, let's see. I, I'm happy to put a bet if anyone wants to email me <laughs> that one year from now, they will not have their employees back, not the ones that can work from home. So just to be clear, there are some that, for example, high speed traders that have to use very expensive equipment. And you know, fast connectivity, they have to be in the office, so they don't really have much of a choice. But for those, you know, graduate jobs that can work from home, those folks are just not going back five days a week. Not unless there's another recession or some, you know, some other big event that causes more turmoil. Yeah, I guess in the investment banking world, I've also been reading a lot of stories about even junior level employees saying, you know, this just isn't worth it to me. And all the banks having to raise wages substantially, even for their new hires out of uh, business schools in order to staff themselves. So this whole thing of, you know, like being able to offer this as an incentive just seems like really powerful, you know, and especially in these highly competitive sectors. So you have said this is going to stick. We are in a new in a new world. Are there any other factors that you think play into this other than you know sort of worker happiness and productivity? Is there are there other savings or other gains that are made from working flexible working arrangements? Well, in terms of other things, I sorry to twist the question. I come I come back to the core question, but in terms of yeah. other things that will make that stick, it's worth mentioning you know two three others. One is we've all invested a lot of time. And money in terms of getting, you know, nice home offices, buying, you know, webcams and setting stuff up. I have, I'm, I'm talking to you on a, I'm standing up because I'm talking on a desk that I have at home that lowers and raises because it's more comfortable. So people have invested what we estimate in the Barrera and Davis paper is probably one to two percent of GDP over the pandemic in setting up tangible, you know, time and money, setting up home offices. And that money, you know, that's irreversible. So that's one big sticking factor. Another factor is from surveys, it's very clear that we are going to have some long run residual fear of density. So in particular, over 75, I think it's 76% of people say they are nervous. They will be nervous post-pandemic, even with, you know, even vaccinated post-pandemic people of getting into crowded elevators, packed subway trains. I think I might put myself in that. I'm not sure. I would feel totally comfortable getting in a jammed elevator with 50 people. And if that's the case, that generates another major obstacle for refilling the centers of things like New York 
San Francisco and returned to the office. And then finally, another interesting thing is the march of technology. So working from home, I've been studying this for 20 years, has got a lot better even in the last 10 years, thanks to video calls and the cloud. So, you know, we couldn't, we're on Zoom. We couldn't have done this 10 years ago because Zoom didn't exist and it was kind of Skype and it wasn't great. And, you know, and I have meetings all the time. I'm sharing files and, you know, using common directories. That's all on cloud, Dropbox, things like that. That also wasn't available. So 10, 15 years ago, you're phoning people up and emailing files. So that dynamic of technological progress has dramatically accelerated during the pandemic. So I have a paper with Steve Davis and Yulia Zeskova that we search for the number of times the work, working from home, remote work, telework, et cetera, comes out in U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, new patents, and that explodes post-20, right, March 2020. So what's happening is all big firms out there know there's now this huge market for technologies to make work from home better and are pouring tons of money into it. So things are going to get yeah. rapidly better. You know, virtual reality, blah, 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 is going to take off and make this thing really stick. That's fascinating. You know, it, it, that stuff was probably going to happen anyway, just because of the natural evolution of technology. But yeah, all of a sudden, there's a huge incentive to be first to market with some fabulous new thing that's going to make working remotely easier. I want to go back to the health issue that you raised at the beginning. One of our scholars, Scott Gottlieb, has been talking about this, that we actually do need a culture shift. And I think we probably have already achieved it actually around not working in the office when you're sick. The expectation will now be, you know, for the employees that, you know, have the option that if you are ill, even with cold or the flu, don't come into the office. And he thinks that's not just a good business practice. That's a really good public health practice in terms of limiting transmission of disease. And I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we had a culture where it was like, if you're sick, you're still expected. There's sort of this, you know, you don't want to be seen as a malingerer, you know, so you come in even though you're sick. And I think that that's, that's probably one of the biggest shifts that, we, that we'll see in terms of attitudes toward work. Yeah. I, so working from home is, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's got taken this step. And working from home helps us a lot because imagine you're in a hybrid mode. You're working, you know, three days a week in the office, two days a week at home. You, of course, have the ability to work from home well set up and it's norm. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not feeling great, you just take a home day. So a home day, you know, unlike a sick day, just says, look, I'm not going to come into the office today. I'm going to work from home. And, you know, if your condition gets worse, you say, look, I'm really not feeling, really feeling pretty bad. I'm just going to, I'm just going to take a sick day. But instead, it turns out to be, you know, a mild cold or it wasn't what you thought it was. Maybe it was a British hangover that clears later in the day. Well, then fine. You haven't come in and risked infecting everyone else. So we yeah. saw that sea trip that people took almost half as many sick days when they could work at home. Because, you know, you don't have to guess early in the day whether you're sick or not. And, you know, if it turns out you're actually not so bad, you can continue to work. Yeah. I mean, knock on wood, I haven't been sick in 18 months or two years now because... You know, I mean, I think that catches up with everybody eventually because our immune systems forget what germs are. But <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot better health from being at home than because sort of in January and February when the flu is rampant, you know, just sort of everybody piling into offices and breathing each other's air is not great. I suspect this is going to end up saving the economy a lot of money, you know, and lost work. Okay, so. You put out a paper in May that was entitled, Don't Let Employees Pick Their Work From Home Days. So I'd just like you to give a summary, a short summary of that and why you think it's important. Sure. Yeah. So maybe that title might have been, you know, a bit strongly worded. You know, as you know, in anyone that's in media doesn't get to choose often their titles, but they write their content. So yeah, I yeah I've been I've been victim of that. So we understand. Go ahead. I, I mean, I, I was the title was run by me. It was a good title down the road. I might have, you know, said something like, you know, think twice before. Anyway, so the reasons are there's three issues. So, you know, just to set it up, there's, there's two decisions and three issues. So the two decisions are which days employees choose, A, and B, how many days. So I, I'll run through why those two are worth thinking about. So there's three issues around it. One is the problems of mixed mode. It turns out it doesn't work very well to have some people in the office and some at home. 
So, you know, you imagine initially that those in the office will crowd into the conference room, but they're on one small screen and Zoom that's whispering. You can't really see what goes on. Most companies have a rule now whereby there's one person or more at home on Zoom. Evan in the office should also join independently on their, on their Zoom or Teams or whatever it is. And that then means, you know, having asynchronous or summer in, summer home is painful because the people in the office have to connect in on a laptop. And you're like, why on earth am I coming in just to spend half the day staring into my laptop? So that's over choice of days. Second issue is if you look at the survey data we've been collecting, you know, the thousands of people every month, you ask them, which two days would you like to work from home? But Brent, which, which two days would you guess? I should leave everyone listening. If, you, if people are given two days a week to work from home, which days would everyone guess? Which would you guess, Brent? I'm guessing Friday and Monday. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> so everyone basically says Friday, Monday. So the second yeah. problem with choice is if you want to use your office space efficiently or you want to hold your office space as it is but reduce density, then you probably don't want to let complete choice because, you know, everyone's going to come in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then the final issue that's the, you know, the hardest to explain, but it's potentially the most problematic in the long run, is think of two things. So one is who wants to work from home is not random. So if we look in the survey data, we see that, for example, disabled people report a much higher preference than non-disabled. You see amongst college-educated employees with kids under the age of 12, women report a significantly higher preference than men. We see that varies by race. So black and Asian workers report significantly higher preferences than white and Latinx workers. So a number of you know, people living further from the office have a higher preference to work from home than those living nearby, and they're typically lower income. So there's a number of reasons for this. Make, you know, it's very rational, makes economic sense. The problem is it collides with the second fact, which is if you are working from home in a team where other people are coming in more days than you, you're likely to suffer from promotion. In fact, I mentioned in the C-Trip study, folks randomized into working from home after 21 months had 50% lower promotion. So the third problem with choice over how many days is we could easily see, say, single young men that live right next to the office come in five days a week, move up the corporation, get promoted. And you know, you, again, you come back to various issues with diversity. So I've been generally advising firms to do a couple of things. One is to set up a plan whereby it's, say, two days in the office, but you also have two days at home and maybe the, the fifth day is a choice. And B, that you pick at least those two days in the office to be the same day. So a typical thing will be, say, we're all going to come in Tuesday, Thursday. Wednesday, say, is a free choice day. Monday, Friday, you'll work from home. Now, you know, you could vary that by team to have teams, different teams, you know, varying over the days to make good use of space. But that means within teams, people come in on the same day and on your work from home days, you don't feel nervous that someone else is coming in to try and jump ahead of you in the promotion. Yeah, I mean, it's potentially employers, I don't think, can advertise this. But if employees can get the message that it's in your interest to have an office presence, you know, because of this promotion and pay issue, that seems to me to be the, you know, kind of the balancing factor for workers not to just say, well, I'm just going to work from home full time. I mean, people need to understand that they, you know, that there are professional sacrifices that go along with that or potentially unless business can figure out a way, you know, to reverse human nature and not, you know, not make presence, you know, no, not you, matter you, anymore. You're exactly right. Uh, my advice has been to try and limit it in both directions. So you want to make sure people are in the office two days a week, let's say, because it is important to come in. But you also want to make sure people work from home for two days a week, because this is the classic prisoner's dilemma. So look, imagine we all want to work from home. But I know if everyone else works from home, if I sneak in on that extra day, I'm going to get ahead in the promotion stakes. Now, Brent, you discover me sneaking in and you think, oh, I need to sneak in too. And eventually everyone's sneaking on the, you know, the first and the mm -hmm. second day and the whole system collapses. So right. it's actually in the employer's interest to make sure Mandated. everyone works. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the most stable setup, it probably is two at home, two in the office, you choose the fifth day. Then it gives you a bit of flexibility, but not so much that the whole system falls apart. Okay. Well, that actually satisfies that itch for me of trying to figure out Intuitively, I thought, yeah, that makes sense that you can't have a wild west of work from home. But that structure, I think you've articulated it, really is valuable and helpful. 
So what, if any, downside is there to the shift that we're undergoing? What sorts of things are you recommending to businesses to help compensate for stuff that is just it's just harder, you know, to make sure that you've got as much equality as you can get between people who are like, what are some of the other, if there are other trade-offs that this is creating, what are they and what are you advising companies to do about them? No, it's a great point. This great point. This comes up all the time. So again, you know, just literally earlier this morning, the company, huge US company I was talking to. So almost always managers will say, you know, in my company, there are a whole bunch of people that have to come in every day. They're frontline workers and they're really, you know, they're angry. They feel upset. They're saying, hey, wait, you, you know, managers get to work from home during the pandemic and now get this lovely hybrid perk post-pandemic. So generally the suggestions of one being recognize the issue, which helps them. It's definitely not the full solution, but it helps a little bit. And then two, in terms of you know, actual practical solutions, one is some companies are making pay increases or bonuses to folks that have to come into the office. In fact, the labor market turns out it's forcing that upon a lot of companies because the low-skilled end of the labor market is particularly tight. The other thing you can do is give them some flexibility too. So you can think about adopting things like 980 plans whereby you work slightly more each day and get every other Friday off or more extreme four-day weeks, whereby you work 10 hours a day for four days and get the fifth day off. Now, not everyone wants that, but some people do. And you know that kind of improved flexibility that may help deal with some of the resentment between haves and haves nots and hybrid. And, you know, there's two other groups that I might say that are lose out. You know, generally, I think working from home, certainly a hybrid, is great for society. It's one of the few benefits of the pandemic in many dimensions. A couple of groups lose out. I mean, one would be, there are people in our survey, 22% of people report they want to work in the office five days a week. They tend to be young singles or you know, older empty nesters. That group, you know, they miss the social life in the office. They like the office. They, you know, they may live nearby. So there are some people that would prefer to go in more days than come. Another group that lose out are, you know, this is a slightly different dimension, but people who bought property in the center of big cities pre-pandemic. So another impact working from home has done is it's emptied out and reduced the valuations of city centers. So you can see why it's kind of straightforward. If you only have to go into the office three days a week or maybe even two days a week, you're thinking, oh, look, I, I can put up with a longer commute, but I really do want a bit more space at home to, say, have a home office. And that's led to a huge movement out to the suburbs of big cities. So if people still want to live, say, in the Bay Area or New York, they just go out to the suburbs because they've only got to come in twice a week. And that has pushed prices down. In fact, particularly for commercial property and high-rises and city centers that are now not only have less demand, but you know you can't get these things beyond 50% occupancy because of capacity constraints and elevators. So if you, if you owned a lot of high-rise buildings and city centers, or if you own you know, apartments and centers, you've relatively done badly because your property is worth less than it would have been. Yeah, I keep thinking you know, on that issue for major kind of city business districts. That's a huge hit, and not just to like the people who own the buildings, but all of the businesses that go into supporting the commuters, food and clothing and bars and restaurants and you know all sorts of things that you know they just they're just not seeing the traffic. It seems like there could be a huge knock-on effect in urban economies around this. Have you looked at that? Yeah, I mean, with Jose Barrera and Steve Davis, we did look. I would say it's definitely substantial. So to give you some numbers, we estimate New York, San Francisco city centers may lose something like long run 5 to 10% of spending. The reason it's not more is only half of Americans can work from home, and they on average are likely to work from home two out of five days a week. So that you know curtails how much the drop can be. And then if you look at city center retail, you know, a lot of an expenditure in businesses, a lot of it is from tourists, from people that are going in any way that aren't working. But yes, it's clear long run, it's down five to 10%. During the pandemic, it's down much more. So I have another paper with Arjun Romani where we've actually pulled US Postal Service change of address date, and you can break it out for residential and businesses. And in fact, for both of them, you see there's been about a 15% drop in number of people and businesses and city centers over the pandemic. So that is emptied out. It hasn't yet recovered. I suspect that will recover about halfway to what it was pre-pandemic. So it'll go from minus 15 to say maybe minus five, six, seven percent. 
So even a, about a partial recovery is, has its own sort of silver lining built into it, right? I mean, it's going to lower it's going to lower some rent costs and and other costs for people who would you know have often thought they'd like to be living yes. or working in that, those places and just haven't been able to afford it. It's just been very interesting to see, you know, like in March, April, May last year, they were talking about how cheap you could get a brownstone in Brooklyn, right? Those stories are no longer appearing because those rents went down and people who always wanted to live in New York suddenly said, you know what, we can do it. At this price, we can live in New York and they've they've moved in. So that's stabilized. I don't really see that on the commercial side, though. What do you think is going on with commercial real estate? And before you answer that, I mean, I've had some conversations with people pretty high up in some major businesses talking about, you know, we're really reconfiguring. We're, we're going to reconfigure our space. We're going to have more team spaces for team-related work and fewer cubicles, and that's going to reduce our footprint. Do you see that happening, or is that overstated? Yeah, so I mean, two things. One is, uh, I'm totally aligned with you that I actually think it's probably a good thing to reduce a bit of the density and price of city centers. You know, pre-pandemic 2019, we're always discussing, certainly out here in Bay Area, the affordability crisis and how particularly essential service workers, think of folks like police, nurses, teachers, many of these need to go in every day. They cannot work from home. And so for them, they really have to work, you know, towards city centers. And so the fact that rents and prices have gone down generally helps them. So, yeah, I, I mean. City centers have been getting ever more expensive since 1980 and are really just unwinding this five, 10 years. So I think it's all good, actually. Yeah. I mean, the only losers if you own a lot of property in city centers, but they're typically, you know, a few very wealthy individuals. So I don't net net think that's so bad. On commercial property, yeah. you know, it's hard to tell, partly because transaction volume has plummeted. But, you know, for, like you from talking to Ray at some various commercial property companies, I think demand is down. The really problematic thing is high-rise buildings. So think yeah. of you know the Empire State Building or Salesforce Tower in Silicon Valley. They are cursed by two things. One is, how do you get people to the front door without crushing them on mass transit? How do they get there at you know, 8 to 9 a.m. and get it back out again at 5 p.m.? And secondly, when they're at the front door, how do they get up to floor 30? Yeah. So yeah. Pre-pandemic, there already were queues for elevators in the mornings up and down in the evening. And that was when you sardine pack people in. Now, I'm not sure we'll go back to that. And if we don't go back to that, I don't know how we operate. I mean, my prediction is, A, these buildings are probably going to run at about 50% capacity, you know, post-pandemic for several years. And B, we may have to be creative, like, for example, slashing rents and inst- per square foot and instead charging a bit for elevators, say, up between eight and nine and down between four and five to try and, you know, now the constraining factor in Salesforce Tower isn't the square footage. Is actually literally getting people up to the square footage. So you should price that, like airlines price seats, rather than price the space up on floor. So congestion pricing for elevators, I, I really love that idea. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, you can do it. Because, you, know, yeah. you know, the nice thing is, because security, you see when people swipe in and swipe out. So right. you, you, know, you have everyone swipes. So you can easily execute it. You know what would happen? It was like every firm would say, you know, you guys, you don't need yeah. to start at nine. You can start at 10 and leave at six. And lo and behold, the free market would take care of this issue. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the themes, I think, of this whole remote work saga over the last two years or year and a half has been like the way that the market is settling a lot of these questions rather than having any kind of centralized policy or law or regulation, you know, it's just like people are having to make it up. They're having to negotiate this on the fly. And that's actually getting us probably where we need to go in a number of different areas, which is really, you know, a validation of this idea that, you know, people are pretty smart and they will work out a lot of their own problems if they're given the opportunity to do that. So one more question that I wanted to ask, we did a survey of unemployed workers. And we asked actually quite a few questions about remote work as part of that survey. And one of the more interesting things that I saw in that survey was the ideological and political split between Republicans and Democrats over remote work, with Democrats really 
and and ideological liberals really endorsing, wanting, demanding, you know, continuation of remote work policies and Republicans and conservatives, you know, really hard over in favor of in-person work. And I'm wondering if you have encountered any of that or issues related to that kind of split in your research. That's really interesting. I tell you what we find. So we do find significantly higher preference for in-person work in red states and red counties, because we know the zip. So just to back up, we've been serving 5,000 people a month since last May. So we have like 50,000 data points and we know their zip code. So we can look at, you know, the Trump vote share, say, in the county, and there's a pretty good indicator of the red blue, red blueness of the state. And yes, you certainly find that more red states, um, individuals are more in favor of coming to the office and report their employers are more likely to have them come into the office. That effect shrinks dramatically if you control for income, education, and demographics, particularly education. And the reason is more educated employees tend to like and be more likely to have the ability to work from home. And that's also correlated with blueness. You can imagine, you know, graduates tend to be in city centers. They're here in wealthy suburbs that tend to be much more likely to be blue. So a lot of that, I think, at least in our data, is driven by the demographics of who lives in red and blue areas. So even after that, it's true there is still a gap, but it's a lot smaller. And mm. one interpretation is honestly, being red versus blue is proxying for stuff we can't measure, your level of education, the type of occupation you do. I mean, particularly under Trump, being a red voter was more like to skew towards, you know, actually more like to be you know, manual, manufacturing, more frontline. Blue is more like to skew towards office, job, tech, finance. And the latter group finds it very easy and is very well able and big, you know, heavily in favor of working from home. And the former group is not as available, and therefore they're probably less. You know, we see it in the data less in favor of it. So, you know, oddly enough, yes, there's a big skew, but most of it seems to be explained by other factors, or they're not entirely. And it could be. I mean, I don't doubt politics could drive this. It certainly drives views on vaccinations and you know social distancing, etc. Although it didn't in our data, it wasn't nearly as important as education. You know, I have to say, education and income are overwhelmingly the driving factor. Right. Rich uh, graduates have office jobs that can be done from home. Low-income non-grads basically are doing frontline jobs that cannot be done from home. That's really interesting to you know have that data that's that is controlled for those socioeconomic other socioeconomic factors. I continue to wonder whether this isn't something like, to some degree, something like masks. It's your views on this are. A part of identity and tribal membership. No, I can see and, that. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I just no. I, I just should think say, yeah. You know, I'm gonna do a small bit of advertising or maybe a social good service, which is our data is actually available on our website. So if you go to www.wfhresearch.com, so working from home, wfhresearch.com, we have the data is anonymized, so anyone can run this regression, you know, and you know, analyze it. And you're right. I, you know, I think politics does play a role, and it's why we've looked at it, actually. We've been interested by it. Corporates that I talk to generally steer clear of this issue because it's yeah. so sensitive. In fact, <laughs> earlier yeah. today, the CEO said, again, of this huge company, I won't name who, but I mean, you'll all have heard of it, but there's two issues. One is vaccine mandates. The other is the future of work. And you know, you'll be glad to know we have you know, a professor, which is me, to talk about the second topic, and we are not going to discuss the first topic. <laughs> You know, I know it's so painful for so many of you. And, uh, you know, it's hard to know whether it's painful on view or painful in enforcement. I got the impression it was the latter. But. Yeah, no, I think that's right. We should have another podcast just on that. That, by the way, if you look in the data, yeah. I mean, I guess it's been overtaken by policy. But in the data, it was very clear that support for vaccine mandates started from an extremely low level. but was rising fast throughout 2021 when in our survey data. So anyway, I mean, it, it was it, one of the reasons is, Maybe that's related to your policy thing. That is quite complementary with hybrid work. And the reason is if you want people to come into the office three days a week, you know, to work together, to be social, et cetera, so they can earn their two days a week working from home, you kind of need to have them vaccinated so yeah, that you don't get sure. regular outbreaks. And so that's why it turns out that vaccine mandates actually tend to go hand to hand with hybrid work. Well, terrific. Okay, Nick, you are a really busy guy and you're everywhere doing everything. But if people are interested in learning more about you, 
and your work and maybe not reading all of your papers, but they want to they want to be able to like follow you on Twitter or you have a blog or anything that people could sort of tap into if they're interested in keeping track of this debate. You know, I, I'm embarrassing. Like, I don't know. I, you know, I shouldn't claim age, but I just somehow Twitter passed me by. So I don't actually do Twitter. In part, I'm worried about having one too many beer and firing off. Uh, <laughs> that I'll forever regret. But, you know, I do post stuff. I'm working from home in particular at this website, wfhresearch.com. We pretty regularly post up. But, I mean, I put something up the other day about in the Harvard Business Review about, you know, good luck trying to get your employees back five days a week. It's never going to happen. So we put something out every kind of every other week on that. Yeah, and I have my own research website, but I agree. Reading academic papers. If anyone here has trouble sleeping at night, you can go, you know, download some of my papers. It's cheap. Oh, there's, there's an art form for non-specialists to read these, which is read the abstract, read the introduction, skip the math, and then look yeah, at the conclusions, exactly. right? So I, I don't know, Brent, if you feel, I feel at times as an academic, you're a bit straight-jacketed in your own journals that you know the referees and the editors i can i totally understand why but want a certain amount of maths and algebra and you know statistical wizardry and so it can you know i often find it liberating to write pieces that refuse that like blog pieces or pieces for hbr you can kind of state what you find without having to spend so much time going through how you find it all the methodological right All, all the stuff you have to do for your professional audience for them to trust you exactly yeah yeah absolutely well, Nick, thank you again for your time. This has been so interesting and informative. I hope that we can get back together again sometime in the next few months just for another quick check-in on how things are developing. That'd be great. Hey, thanks. Thanks very much for chatting, Brent. And again, it's the power of remote work. You know, right, right. Over Zoom. In fact, at this point, you know, no one else can see, but our camera's off to maximize the use of our bandwidth, but it has worked very well. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.